From the APR Creation Studio, this is the Unconquered Podcast. As always, I'm Jason Staples. And as always, this show is brought to you by EPR Creations. EPR Creations partners with small businesses for website development and online strategy planning. If you have any need for an improved internet presence or just want to improve your marketing, call EPR Creations. Let them know you heard about them from the Unconquered Podcast. And while you're at it, go over to showthesafeties.com and sign that petition, which EPR Creations, uh, I contracted them to do the uh, the work there. Uh, it was one of their quick and easy packages to make sure that uh, that got done quickly and properly. All right, well, let's go ahead and get to the episode. And this is, uh, of course, a breaking news special episode. Not a normal time that I would be recording this. Actually, I would normally be recording the Unconquered Podcast Patreon film session. But uh, bigger news this evening that's going to be the source of discussion for quite a while now, anything Florida State related, and that is that head coach Willie Taggart has been terminated by Florida State, finishing his career with nine wins at Florida State against, uh, what, 11 losses and uh, $25 million for those nine wins, unless somehow that gets negotiated down, which sometimes that does happen. But if I were Willie Taggart, I wouldn't be taking a cent less than $17 million, the $17 million that was owed to me, especially since I didn't get to finish even two seasons, which is not the norm. But, uh, yeah, this is, this was very quick. Uh, this was surprising to, to me that this happened this quickly. So I did mention on the podcast a couple weeks ago that I was told that the money was not going to be a problem, that they had taken care of that. And then that was reinforced this week when I was told that basically they already had commitments for that money, uh, that money necessary to buy Willie Taggart and the staff out if need be, but that basically he would need to win seven games that as long as he won seven games, that his job would be safe. Uh, then this happened with Miami, and, well, I guess that was a bad enough result, a bad enough look, especially with the Kirk Herbstreet comments. One person who knows uh, John Thrasher said that Her- Herbstreet's comments may have been the uh, straw that broke the camel's back because Thrasher really does not like to be uh, Florida State to look bad on a national stage like that. And for that kind of discussion to happen, well, he he that that may have been the the final decision uh, being made right there. But ultimately, uh, there was they, they found the money, and uh, that's going to be taken care of. I was told by uh, someone close to the boosters that there was actually another booster who had uh, offered to put up five million dollars to put a five million dollar donation in for them to keep Willie Taggart through twenty twenty because he believed in in Willie Willie Taggart. But uh, ultimately, that voice was uh, was not enough in Taggart's favor, and uh, but that does tell you the uh, you know where where things were in terms of the the boosters. At any rate, um, this is like I said, this was surprising that it happened when it did. I thought that this would happen maybe after the Florida game, after uh, humiliation at the hands of Florida, but uh, that's not what happened. So it's going to be interesting. They're going to finish the year with Odell Higgins as the interim head coach. This should allow them to to slide Jim Levitt onto the field as a as an assistant coach and and for him to actually coach. So uh, that'll be interesting if they decide to do that. But they can they can uh, that that opens up a, a coaching spot. As far as as far as the rest, this is going to be um, 
It's going to be interesting. Uh, I do think that this was the right decision. I've thought that this was the right decision for quite a long time. Uh, and this is one of those places where I now have more of an opportunity to be candid in ways that I'm not always really able to or comfortable being as candid in this particular venue. I sometimes, as as those of you who know to listen carefully uh, know, I sometimes will address things sort of indirectly, even down to, you can tell sort of where I'm at with things by the sorts of things that I put in the, at the beginning and end of episodes. So back when I was doing uh, the bumper music and, and the introduction to the podcast, the mu- that, that sort of thing, the quotes that I would in- include from the coach uh, and that sort of thing would give you some indication of where I thought things were. And by about mid-year last year, I went from Taggart's opening, uh, if you paid attention to what I was doing, I went from Taggart's opening press conference quotes where he was talking about badasses and war daddies and all of that stuff and lethal simplicity and all of that to a quote pulled from a later press conference where he said, well, you know, the problem, you know, the problems that we have are discipline and execution and all of these other things. And I put that in there and then had him wrap up with no excuses And that told you kind of where I thought things were, that I thought ultimately things were not in good shape in the program and left that uh, kind of indirect at the beginning, but uh, went with that. And then eventually went with the Yankity Sax soundtrack after the the first week of this year, because ultimately I thought that this was a clown show and wanted to kind of imply that things were in really bad shape at that point. But um, now I can be a little bit more candid in, in that respect. In that, uh, I, I, to be totally honest, I, I texted those that I trust most. So some former players that I was teammates with and, uh, people that I know are really, uh, really concerned about the program and, uh, very loyal to the program and, uh, close to uh, keep a close eye on things and know what they're looking at. Uh, I texted them after I, after I visited Florida state in the spring quote, FSU is in serious trouble. And that's, that was my conclusion coming out, coming up from coming out from the spring. Uh, my primary concern at that point was that Bryles and Clements would get the offense fixed enough for the short term to stabilize things for a couple of years. And then they would leave because they they're mercenaries and that's not necessarily a bad thing. And then things would, that would extend things. They would get things fixed enough for them to have enough success to keep everybody around, to keep, uh, Taggart around and the rest uh, further into the future. And that would potentially ensure that Florida State would not be nationally competitive for a long, a long time. And that was my, that was my concern because of the level of disorganization that I saw, uh, just the the overall quality of the organization behind the scenes. And this was not just coaching staff. I actually think that several of the people on this coaching staff are excellent coaches. Uh, I think Bryles and Clements and Dugans are all really good coaches. Uh, I think, uh, you know, Harlan Barnett is actually, he, uh, first of all, he's a great human being. I think he's actually a good coach. I I wouldn't necessarily, uh, I I don't think that what they've done as a as a defensive staff overall is is all that good. But I think that the mix of of coaches there, Barnett didn't have a ton of support there. Uh, obviously, Odell Hagens is a phenomenal coach, has been for years. But at the end of the day. Uh, 
I felt like the overall level of disorganization within the program, talking to some of the people within the building that I talked to uh, when I visited and getting to see some of the stuff that I did in practice and otherwise, I thought this is this is this is not good. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I was skeptical about the hire to, to begin with. I mean, if you go go back through my Twitter timeline, uh, I wanted Jeff Brom or Matt Campbell back in 2017. Uh, I know James Franklin from Penn State, Gary Patterson from TCU, and Mike Leach all contacted Florida State before Florida State targeted Willie Taggart. Uh, and those guys had interest, legitimate interest in the job at that point. And I think any of those three would have probably been a better choice at that time. Uh, but like I said, I wanted Brom or Campbell at that time. I think either one of those guys would have had Florida State uh, in better shape more quickly and would have had a culture change more quickly there. Uh, I did get more on board once I was told that Taggart would be bringing Jim Levitt and some of the other guys that he was supposed to be bringing with him. And then ultimately some of those things fell through partly because of the lack of administrative commitment to bringing in some of those best guys and partly because of uh, Taggart and not being able to attract them, not being able to recruit them and, and get them to commit to him. Uh, and ultimately, you know, I, I just didn't, uh, I didn't see in terms of the staff hires and all of that overall. And I should mention also, also I think Dave Kelly is also a really good coach and he just happens to be off the field this year. But, um, I think he's a, a tremendous judge of talent and a good coach. Uh, so there are good people in this program, but ultimately I think the, 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 what I saw is that the level of disorganization, uh, was, was an issue. Uh, now I am I'm really sad to see this happen because I do think Willie Taggart he he has conducted himself with class in the program. Uh, he has represented the program well. He, the, the some of the changes that he made in terms of uh, getting the players to commit to going to class, uh, taking care of a lot of that stuff off the field was admirable. And I think I, I certainly hope that whoever takes over after after him continues to build on that. Uh, I think his commitment to exposing players to future, uh, to, to, uh, off the field type stuff where they had the opportunity to, to explore what life in various careers and that sort of thing looked like and introducing them to people in various careers. All of that stuff is, is really positive, uh, and, and should have been being done while before Taggart was, was at Florida state. Some of the stuff that he introduced in terms of you know going and uh, learning the fight song and 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 doing the stuff with the band at the end of each game. I mean, the guy uh, the guy got it in in so many respects, and it's really sad to see that it didn't work. Uh, but ultimately, you you've got to be able to coach and run the organization in such a way as to make all of that stuff. I mean, at the end of the day, you're you're hired to win games, and Florida State is not a place where they're willing not to win games for very long. And, uh, you know, this is a place that won a national championship this decade and played in another this decade and, you know, five years ago. And yeah, the uh, Jimbo Fisher left the program in bad shape, but you, you ultimately can't not have things improved at the end of your second year. And, uh, and, and so I think this was the right decision. And again, going back to it, the when you look at it, things were just extremely disorganized. All you have to do is look at the pregame warmups and the lack of discipline in terms of how guys went through things. Uh, this was not a business-like approach. 
and, and this is not what I was told to expect after he was hired. I mean, this is one of those things where some of the people close, uh, close to Taggart when I first, uh, again, I was skeptical at the beginning, but after he took the job, one of the things that I was told is, look, he's going to be a disciplinarian. He's going to be no nonsense. And that's not really what, what we saw. There was too much stuff that was allowed to go. I mean, last year, and I, I won't, I won't, I'm, I'm not going to dwell on too much of this stuff. I mean, there's a lot of this stuff we can, we, that, that's going to come out at different points. But last year you look at, he made the players earn their single digit numbers. And then you got to wonder like, how did Nooney Murray get number eight? Well, the, from what I was told, uh, when it came time for picture day, Nooney Murray did not have number eight in his locker and pitched a fit basically because he hadn't earned the single digit number. Uh, and the equipment guy put the number that he had been wearing. I don't remember what it was uh, in practice in his locker. And that was going to be the number that he was going to take with, for the, uh, for the team picture. He was going to use that because he hadn't earned eight. And um, then Murray basically pitched a fit in the locker room and uh, basically became so difficult with that, that the, that the equipment manager uh, let, Taggart, no, like, look, you know, he, I, I put the number you, you told me to put in his locker and he's freaking out. And Taggart just said, I've just given the eight. And that kind of, to me, typifies a lot of the Taggart regime uh, is a lot of ultimately really pushing guys to do what they would do the right thing. And, you know, he did that a lot and I got a lot of respect for that. But ultimately when the rubber came to, to, to meet in the road on some of these things, well, it's just, all right, well, you know, we've taken it that far. We've tried to get there, but you know, let's give him another chance. And at that level, you're, you, that's, that's a guy you don't want to play. You don't want to play that game with. And, you know, we all know, sort of who knew Nooney Murray was. And that's, that's an issue. So, uh, you know, and then you get to things like practice schedules regularly changing at the last minute where staffers didn't even know what to expect coming in day by day. Uh, you know, <laughs> suddenly, or, or what day you would have a meeting, you know, all of a sudden an hour before a meeting, you get a text where you thought the night was off as a staff and then all of a sudden you get a text to be here in an hour. We got a coach's meeting or, uh, you know, a, uh, a staff meeting. And it's like, but wait, wait a second. I, this was not supposed to be a, a day where we had that meeting tonight. Well, just changed my mind. That sort of thing happening on the regular to the point where it was unpredictable on when you were going to be meeting. Uh, then also when he took over, I, I, and some of you will remember this. Uh, I, I mentioned this briefly on the podcast when he took over that there were a lot of people talking about how, you know, they were going so much higher tempo and practice and that they'd have to get used to that. And I remember talking to somebody who was in practice who had been there for both Fisher and, uh, and, uh, and Taggart and asked about, you know, how they were taken to the higher tempo. And I was told, well, the practices are actually lower tempo. They're going slower than they did under Fisher. Yeah. They're snapping. There's less time between snaps when they're doing scrimmage and all that. But in terms of number of reps and everything, players are actually getting maybe half the number of reps that they were before. Fisher's practices were much higher tempo in terms of the number of reps that each player got. And that was, when I heard that, I was like, oh, wow, that's concerning. And then it made sense to me once I realized that they were opening pretty much every practice with the Oklahoma drill or the null drill, as they called it, which seriously, 
first of all, most teams, most programs have completely gone away from that drill, partly because it's uh it's not a not a safe drill. It's not one, you know, given the, all the head, head injury stuff and all of that, you know, that's one that has been banned in a lot of, uh, in, you know, you can't even run that drill in the, uh, at the high school level in most States. But secondly, it's not a drill that makes you any better in terms of technique on anything. You, uh, you know, as a, let's say as a, the, the, again, the way that this drill works is you have an offensive lineman versus a defensive lineman. You have a, back versus a linebacker or a, you know, uh, you know, you've got a lead blocker against a linebacker and then you got a defensive back against the ball carrier. You know, you can kind of mix that up, but you can have either two or three levels of this. And then basically you choose one way or another to go as the ball carrier and you work your way up and each guy's got to block his level. Well, here's the thing is the offensive lineman and the defensive lineman. It's an unrealistic drill for them because the offensive lineman doesn't have a clear way, a clear path to block. You're not blocking to the right or to the left, depending on the play call. You're not teaming up with another lineman, defensive lineman. Even if you're two gapping, you're supposed to gap from one gap into the other. There's a major gap and a minor gap. And instead you're just trying to hold up here in a way that isn't actually like what you do on the field. It's a worthless drill. It's just a tough guy's drill. Uh, you know, one of those that is all about showing who's tough and yeah, you know, I guess there's a place for that once in a while, but here's the real problem with it. Beyond all that, beyond the fact that it's not helping you get any better at technique, the real problem is that you're going to have basically six participants maximum, or if you're running them side by side, you might have 12 participants maximum going on, and the rest of the team is just watching and cheering. That means you're spending five to 10 minutes of practice anytime you do this where 85% of the team, 90% of the team isn't getting any better. They're not repping. They're just cheerleading. And practice time is really valuable. You only get 20 hours. So, I mean, and that's including game time during season that you can, that you can work with your players. So, I mean, you're getting a good 16 hours of practice, you know, 17 hours of practice that you have, and you're going to take, let's say, out of out of the week, two or three days where you're going to take anywhere from t- five to 10 minutes doing this, that's going to cost you half an hour to an hour of practice. Let's say, let's say you're spending a half an hour a week on that. That's a half an hour you could be spending on something else where you're getting better. That's a, that's a significant problem. And so that's the sort of thing that watching that is just super frustrating. He's <laughs> going, why, why even do this? This is something that, yeah, a lot of teams did in the 1980s, but nobody does it anymore for a reason. Some teams did it in the nineties. Some teams, you know, even later in Florida state now, but there's very little reason to do it. So that's the sort of thing that was, was frustrating to see. And I, I know I was not the only person who was kind of shaking my head at that at different points. And, you know, the staff also made significant mistakes assessing the roster and not coming down hard on players. They came in and they listened to some, some, some of the wrong people and took the view that this team had kind of been beaten down by Fisher and his staff, that they were, uh, that they basically just needed somebody to believe in him. And, uh, and they took the idea of becoming, you know, introducing music and getting this team, getting on the side of this team so that they would buy in rather than you guys had it too easy before and you're going to, you're going to be held in held accountable now on the field and, you know, basically taking 
the opposite approach, which is what that, that group needed. They had learned how to tune out Jimbo's bark because they knew that Jimbo would bark at him, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't actually punish them in a serious way. And so they kind of did their own thing and they needed to be held accountable on the field. They took care of a lot of the stuff off the field, but in terms of the on the field stuff, they didn't take care of that adequately. They really needed a disciplinarian in a lot of those respects. And some of the people around the program and some of those were media, some of those were others uh, around the program uh, had the wrong narrative. As I said, from the very beginning, a lot of the criticisms about Jimbo Fisher at the time were absolutely wrong. The idea that Fisher was uh, too hard on his players. I'm hearing now that some of the the media outlets or even some of the other people uh, uh, in the media outlets are actually talking about how Fisher was all bark and no bite at the time. Well, go go back and do your timeline and you'll find out that I was saying that before others. And I was telling, uh, I was telling people, look, this is, if you're going to criticize Jimbo, you criticize him for that, not for being too hard on these guys. But people have caught up. Some people have caught up to that. Eventually, though, you know, they, they came in and they, they believed some of that. I know, though, that they knew better on some of this stuff because I had been actually. So I know that before they even took the job, that there were people who gave them notes on, OK, this player has been a disciplinary problem. You know, you've got to deal with this. Here's where the talent is. Here's where some the, the talent is absent. And, you know, they got that from more than one person. And some of the people were very candid and were correct about who they needed to look at. Ultimately, though, um, you know, when you start DeAndre Francois, and I understand, look, talent-wise, he was the best guy on the roster. But when you start DeAndre, when you give Nooney the eight when he when he demands it, and, you know, you start and play those guys, you're you're dealing with some of the leadership issues right there. And, you know, those are some of the mistakes that were made. And ultimately, the other big mistake is that they never found a quarterback. They didn't get it. They didn't land a quarterback either in the first class. They needed to take someone that could work in their in their offense, find it, find someone, and they didn't. And again, in that first class, it's so hard because of the new new signing period. But then you absolutely can't miss in the second class. And they put all their eggs in the Sam Howell basket. I think we're seeing why with how Howell has played at North Carolina. But you needed to land a quarterback that could run your system in year two. They did not, and between that and not getting offensive tackles to improve the personnel that you've got there, or getting, you know, say, uh, Malcolm Lamar or someone like that to actually move to offensive tackle, not getting that stuff done, that ultimately sunk them. I mean, if you've got Sam Howell in this roster, they're probably two wins better, and, they're, they're, and Taggart still has a job. I, that, honestly, I think if you get Jaden Daniels, who is who actually I liked better than Howell coming out of high school. He would have been my first target. If you land Howell or Jaden Daniels, Taggart probably has a job today. But you don't get that, and you don't fix the offensive line, getting better personnel there. That's a force multiplier, as we've talked about, and you got no shot. So you combine a lot of this stuff where you've got organizational issues. I know I heard from uh, from recruiting stuff, especially the first year, that that – some recruits' parents, in particular, were not happy with the lack, with what they perceived as a lack of vision from uh, from Taggart. Uh, and I guess I'll address some of that later. But basically, the idea that the that the vision that they were selling was not was not clear, and uh, and so some of those guys decided to go elsewhere. In some of those cases, I think some of the the really big big name people uh, they probably did present. Uh, a clearer vision to, and you know, ultimately the results in the field were what chased those guys away. But at the end of the day, 
they didn't ultimately change the culture quickly enough. They didn't, and, and the APR obviously is an, is an issue with that, but APR doesn't mean you have to start the bad guys, right? So, you know, you may, you may have to keep them on the team, but you don't start them. And, you know, APR actually involves walk-ons as well. So make sure that you've got additional walk-ons working toward graduation and all of that and, and go from there. And nothing I've seen in APR has any, any mention of it has to be scholarship athletes. And from what I was told by, from people from another program, that's something that you actually make sure that there's, that there's walk-ons in your program that are counted as counted toward the APR stuff as well. So, you know, people like me, who, you know, I was a high GPA walk-on would be, uh, would be worth more. In any case, um, I think, you know, it's like I said, I'm, I'm sad to see this happen because, you know, I, I think Willie is, uh, Willie and that staff, uh, there are some really good people that are involved there and, you know, I wanted them to succeed, but I do think that this was the right decision. Uh, I do think that in the long term for Florida state, as long as they make a good hire is the right, is the right thing. They're, they're going to be more competitive more quickly because of making this decision as quickly as they have. Uh, and, and, you know, the question is, will they be able to, and, you know, this is the a group that I don't think made a great hire two years ago. And they're now the same people are making the decision this year. It's going to be interesting to see whether or not they make a good decision this time. Uh, I know I have my own very strong opinions about some of these things. I know that, that if I were advising this group and I would love to advise this group, in terms of what I what I've gathered from people around the coaching industry, uh, and some of the people that I I know within the coaching industry, uh, I I would be happy to talk to anyone who has any say in this decision. To you know whether they listen to me or not, I would love to 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 uh, to make any sort of contribution to help my alma mater make sure that they have all the information possible. I know I would enlist the help of someone like Dave Bartu, who has extensive data on basically every coach in the country and how, uh, how those coaches have recruited versus the baseline at their various institutions, how they have, uh, how they have, uh, how, how they've actually had their positions or players or their overall teams or the, or their offenses or defenses, if they've been coordinators, how those have performed versus baseline at their institutions. All of that stuff is, you know, he's got reams of data on this stuff. Florida State should be enlisting him and his search firm. It's not that expensive to ensure that they're taking a look at all of the data on every candidate before they come in. Bartu told me, Bartu is the one who told me, and, and those of you who've been longtime listeners will remember that I mentioned that there was a search firm person that I talked to the last time around who said Willie Taggart would not have been in his top 25 candidates for Florida State to look at. Bartu was the guy that told me that. And he said, look, you're going to have problems with game management. You're going to have tons of problems with timeouts. You're going to have tons of problems with, uh, with penalties. His teams are always going to be near, near the bottom of the country in penalties. You're going to have issues with this, that every single thing that he laid out based on his data was, was true. I would enlist his help as a part of this. I know he helped Florida actually, which, you know, it was an easier decision for them because of Dan Mullen's ties there. I know he helped Florida. I know they enlisted him for their decision at the, uh, back in 2017, and Florida State should have enlisted him uh, for, for their stuff. But I would be happy to talk to any of these people uh, because ultimately, like I said, I was not 
real thrilled with the process the last time, and I want to make sure that they have done the best job that they can. Above all, I want the coaching, or I want those who are involved in the coaching search to follow what I call the Butch Jones rule. And that is, uh, that is a, a very clear rule that I, you know, actually I put together, I came up with this rule during the UNC coaching search, actually a little bit after that and a little bit before that in terms of thinking about it. But during the UNC coaching search, when they were considering rehiring Mac Brown, this was something that I was thinking about and thinking about what happened at Florida state, thinking about other things. And the Butch Jones rule is you've got a positive way of framing it and a negative way of framing it. The positive way of framing it is this. Ask yourself, would I hire this person to be the CEO of my fortune 500 company that has nothing to do with football? And if the answer to that question is no, do not hire that person to be a power five head coach. Negatively stated, the rule is never hire a guy who would otherwise be a middle school PE teacher. If it wasn't for football, never hire that guy to be the head coach at a power five institution. And I call this the Butch Jones rule because he spectacularly fails that test. This is a guy who, if it weren't for football, he would be the PE teacher everyone dislikes. Look at how he used, you know, he didn't refuse to use analytics, his, you know, stubbornness on, on a lot of the math stuff, and then just the general watches press conferences. The basic idea here is that if you're a power five head coach at a place like Florida State, you're running a multi-million dollar enterprise. Your primary job description is you're responsible for setting the vision, being the charismatic public face of that multi-million dollar organization. You are in charge of recruiting talent at all levels, including outstanding um, management below you. And then you have to be well-organized and disciplined to ensure the smooth implementation of your vision in that organization by those to whom you delegate day to day. So ultimately, if you're hiring a head coach at the, at the college, at the power five level and at the elite level like Florida State is, you'd better find someone who has those leadership and organizational skills and the charisma. You have to have someone who comes across with that kind of charisma that can fill the room that, that you would want to give your keynote as the CEO, as the face of your organization that has nothing to do with football, independent of actual subject matter expertise. A great CEO is going to be a great CEO, generally speaking, for, you know, you could do, you could be a CEO of Pepsi or you could be the CEO of GM and a great CEO is going to find a way to be, to run a, run the company well, either way. You don't need the subject matter expertise first. So for me, give me a top shelf CEO who has those skills and doesn't even know football over a lifetime coordinator without those, without those skills. CEO, the guy with those skills can learn football, but even a great coordinator won't succeed as a head coach without those skills. And, and the thing is, I've been around a lot of coaches. I've been around a lot of really good coaches too. And you can start going down the list. And the coaches, that all the top shelf head coaches that I've started with or that I've been spent time with, they pass this test. Bobby Bowden, folksy guy, all this other stuff, but you would hire that guy to run your organization. He's going to be the public, especially younger Bowden. He's going to be the public face of your organization. You're going to be pleased with that. Nick Saban, if it weren't for football, Nick Saban might be president. Dabo, spend a few minutes with Dabo and you go, oh, yep, I got it. He's, he's got that charisma. He's got that it. I'd hire this guy. Jimbo Fisher. Urban Meyer. Urban's a weird duck, man, but the Urban also, 
would find a way to run an organization well. Now, he might leave it after some sort of, uh, you know, ethics breach, perhaps, but that's another issue. Jeff Brom, no question. Matt Campbell, absolutely no question. There's, there, these, are the, these are guys that, I mean, I'm telling, and those were the guys that I wanted. Uh, those were the top guys on my list in 2017 because those are guys that, again, they passed this rule. Now, just because if someone passes this rule doesn't mean that you actually hire them, but without passing this rule, you don't hire them. If you listen to this person's press conference and you're not sold on this person as a, uh, as a charismatic face of your organization, don't hire this person. Satterfield, Clawson, Cutcliffe, they all pass immediately. Those are guys that you, you, you meet them and you're like, yep, this guy's organized. This guy has it all, all the organizational skills. Then you can move over to the, to the other stuff. So that's the other thing. I want to make sure that whoever is making this hire for Florida State, for my alma mater, for the place where I played, I want them to be applying that rule. And as far as I'm concerned, that means you can take butch anyone off the, off the, off the table. Butch Davis is a little too old. You're not going to hire him at this stage. He's 70 years old. You're going to hire him at this stage to run your organization anymore. But Lane Kiffin is out. Don't even, I've, I've seen people ask me about, what about Lane Kiffin? If you want things to get worse after Willie Taggart, hire Lane Kiffin. I per personally would prefer not, not to see things get worse, but okay. The guy knows offense. Sure. Sure. I don't want him running my program. I wouldn't hire him to be, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't hire him to be my, my head coach. Les Miles. Yeah. He won a national championship, but that was Nick Saban's organization. I don't want Les Miles is off the board. <laughs> And off the board for other, and, and Jeff Scott also, not on the board in, in this regard. Off the board for other reasons. Venables, not even an option. He's first of all, not leaving Clemson, not in the current situation. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want head coach problems. And he's coaching his son. Yeah, not happening. Also, I'm not hiring a coordinator for this job. This is a, this is a significant Rebuild, and you need to make sure you hire someone who already has the organizational chops to handle this. You're, you, you, you can't afford to hire a coordinator and let him learn on the job, given where things are. So if you're looking at who I would hire, my first phone call would be Matt Campbell at Iowa State. I don't know that they could get him. I don't think they could get him. But I would make him say no. I've talked to Matt Campbell. He passes this test. He passes my Butch Jones test with flying colors and he's a tremendous offensive mind. Someone who is a really good offensive line evaluator and coach. Someone who's always going to be able to make sure that he has a good offense and just overall organizationally excellent, super organized, super charismatic. And then most likely he would come with John Heacock, his, uh, his defensive coordinator, who I think is one of the best young defensive coordinators in the country. If you look at what Clemson, the, the, the changes that Clemson made defensively before this season, and one of the reasons that their defense has been lights out this year, despite not being as good up front, well, they brought Campbell and Heacock in, and, and, the Iowa, and they, they worked with the Iowa State staff in the offseason to improve what they were doing. Think about that. That would be my first phone call. I would make him say no. And then I'd make him say no again. <laughs> 
It's a bigger buyout. It's like $6 million, but I would make him say no. I would love for it to be Jeff Brom. I don't think you can sell that to the Florida State fans or boosters at this point because they're three and six this year at, at Purdue. They've had basically a, a plague hit their team that cost them their starting quarterback. They had actually their backup quarterback go out the last game. Uh, they've It's been an apocalypse in terms of the players that are injured, but he's a genius. Offensively, he also is really good organizationally. He's uh, apparently terrific, uh, you know, as a character guy. And that's something else with Matt Campbell. You're talking about discipline and character guy. But I'd also look at Matt Rule from Baylor. I would look at PJ Fleck from uh, from Minnesota. Norvell at Memphis. I I would interview all of these guys and make sure that I I had all the numbers from uh, from Dave Bartu as well. Obviously, Mark Stoops is someone very familiar with the program. I'm not. I, I I wouldn't necessarily target him, but he's someone that you probably need to at least think about. And then if James Franklin, Gary Patterson, and Mike Leach want to call again, I'm I'm thinking about it. I'm at least considering it because those are all guys that asked before. But that's you know that's basically the kind of board that I would put together. You know, I saw actually uh, the the Yahoo. Uh, who is it? Um, uh, Pete Thamel from your Thamel or whoever, however you say his name from Yahoo. He has Mario Cristobal on the, uh, on the list. And it actually says Cristobal is a Florida native and has long coveted this job. Uh, no, Cristobal is a former Miami, Miami guy who, uh, in the prior, when, when Taggart was hired and Cristobal actually hadn't gotten the Oregon job and didn't seem like he was going to be a, a top candidate for the Oregon job. Someone I know asked Cristobal if he would consider coming to Florida State as the offensive line coach with Taggart, and he basically said uh, he would wear garnet and gold over his dead body. So, yeah, think about that. Um, not really what uh, Thamel said here. Uh, that I think he's just making that up. But anyway, um, those are those are names that I would look at. I think you don't. Uh, you probably wouldn't have to leave that list to get someone to accept the the job. Uh, yeah, I just um, I also, you know, another name that's that I, I keep hearing tossed around is Dave Clawson. Clawson, uh, I don't believe would be a great fit at Florida State. Uh, I think he's a really good coach. He's one of the most organized people you'll ever talk to in this business. I've, I've talked to him over the years, but this is a guy that really doesn't like coaching or doesn't like recruiting the state of Florida for one. Uh, and is a such a high character guy and so concerned with that sort of thing that he really prefers being at a place like Wake Forest where he can get his kind of guys, redshirt him and work their way up. I think he's in the kind of job he wants to stay in. I don't think he really would want to go to Florida State, even though I think he could he could be successful basically wherever he's going. I think he's going to stay at, at, at Wake Forest. So you can kind of take him off the board, I think. Uh, anyhow, um, that's that's kind of that's kind of my list at this point and where I think things stand and you know a little bit of a, a preliminary postmortem in terms of where things are at uh, at Florida State and uh, I honestly my my suspicion based on the little bits of stuff that have filtered to me so far and and my best connected people to this, to the hiring side of things haven't really had a whole lot to say yet. They haven't, um, they haven't given me anything. So I'm, I'm kind of going off of very little at this point, but if I had to guess right now, 
my guess is that Florida State's next head coach will be P.J. Fleck. Uh, I know that someone talked to Fleck recently, uh, or I know someone who talked to Fleck recently, uh, who actually the subject of Florida State and the Florida State job was brought up and whether he would actually consider taking that job. And basically Fleck said, uh, without question, I would, I would, I would, wouldn't even ask, you know, there no questions asked. I'd take that job and I'd win a national title there. So, you know, any of you who are wondering whether or not hi- firing a guy in his second year would deter anyone from wanting to take that job or whether the, uh, athletic director position, you know, being in the, in the hands of an accountant for now and you know, the current instability of the uh, administration would prevent, you know, reasonably good coaches from wanting, wanting in. Well, that should tell you all you want. But again, I wouldn't just target one guy. I wouldn't just say, okay, PJ Fleck is the guy. I would do my due diligence. Don't make the same, same mistake you did the last time. Do your due diligence. Get the bar two numbers. Talk to multiple candidates here. Talk to Matt Campbell. Talk to Matt Rule, PJ Fleck, maybe Jeff Brom, if you feel like you can convince people that this year, uh, you know, despite the the plague that he's been dealing with, you're you're talking about a guy that that belongs in that discussion. Talk to some of these guys and determine ultimately who you think is the best fit, who's going to bring in the best assistance, and who has the best vision and plan for the for the uh, for the athletic department and for the uh, for the program. But like I said, I I suspect that you're going to see. If, if I had to guess right now, my guess would be that they're going to probably pursue PJ Fleck. Uh, partly, you know, he's 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 not that expensive in terms of buyout, and he's had a lot of success. So we'll see. But either way, I do like I said, I think that this was the right decision. I think it's a, it's a sad thing to to have happen, given that you know Willie was a uh, was someone who really this was a dream job for him, and he was already in a place where he was more stable. Uh, and was willing to take the risk and take this job. And in so many respects, especially off the field, he handled himself with such decorum in class and, uh, you know, got a lot of things fixed in terms of off the field uh, for guys to go to class and, and take care of things that way. Uh, it's just unfortunate that things did not work the way that they should have. And, you know, he needed more organizational support, someone to uh, to help offset ultimately the lack of organization that, that came from him. But, at the end of the end of the day, you expect that to be coming from the head coach above all. And that was, that was a weak spot for him. And, uh, I do wish him the best. I hope that he uh, catches on somewhere else and that he's able to, uh, to have success, uh, wherever he goes beyond this. And actually, depending on what happens at USF, he may wind up at USF again because they really loved him down there and, uh, and he had success down there and you just never know. But anyway, uh, I, like I said, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sorry to see that things did not work out. I am somewhat relieved because I, I didn't think that things were going to work out uh, rather early. I thought that uh, pretty early in the process. And um, and ultimately, it's probably best. No, it certainly is best that Florida State rip this Band-Aid off more quickly. So, But the main thing is to make sure that they get the best possible candidate this next time. You can't make a mistake second time in a row. You've got to get this one right. Otherwise, you're very quickly Tennessee and no one in Tallahassee or no no one connected to the Florida State program wants to see that happen. So you better get this one right. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us here. Uh, actually got on such a roll that I didn't talk about my other two sponsors, Louis, William, Louis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida and Garage Makeovers down in South Florida. So you guys know all about those, about those, uh, those folks. If you have any need for any real estate in Jacksonville, give Lewis a call. If you need any garage work done in 
Broward or Palm Beach County, you give Garage Makeovers a call. And as always, thanks to those above the bleach numbers level over at Patreon, Keith Cheney, Casey Kidd, Chris Chartrand, Andrew Garrett, Brian Leninger, and Burt Bertoldi. And of course, make sure to catch our next podcast. Um, I'm not even sure what it's going to cover. <laughs> Depends on some of the stuff that I'll hear, but um, we'll just go with that. This has been the Unconquered Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Staples. Thanks for listening.